0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we are talking about a fascinating book published by Cambridge University Press in 2023 titled The Power of Protocol, Diplomatics and the Dynamics of Papal Government, from about 400 to about 1600, which asks the very simple question with a really interesting series of answers, really how did the papacy govern European religious life without a proper bureaucracy and without the normal resources of a state? I admit, I've been curious about this for quite a long time. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, David Davray, to the podcast to tell us all about it. David, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Miranda.
0: (laughs) Very pleased to have you here. Um, Before we get into all things about the book, though, would you mind please introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Um, sure. So I'm a product of a a fairly conventional academic uh, um, career. started as an undergraduate at Oxford, moved to Cambridge um, after a postdoc in Munich. I spent all my career until retirement at University College London. Um, more recently, i become a fellow of Jesus College Oxford, uh, uh, which is uh, a, a nice add-on to my career. But uh, the book itself is the product of many decades. It's the kind of book that only uh, a man of my kind of age, 71, uh, could have written because it really involves looking at widely different periods of a kind that one wouldn't usually attempt straight after a doctorate or even in mid-career. <coughs> um, so uh, this is, not in fact, not a subject that I have been working on since my doctorate. Uh, I began uh, studying medieval preaching, and was interested in preaching as mass communication, which I thought one can still think one can prove that it was from the 13th century, and also as a source for mental attitudes. But about a third of, my, the, third of the way through my career, about halfway through my career, um, I began to feel that a whole career spent studying medieval sermons was perhaps rather narrow, and I deliberately started broadening out to try to acquire other kinds of expertise. Every kind of historical source has a diplomatic. This is something that medievalists know, though other historians don't really seem to be aware of it. Um, a diplomatic is, in a nutshell, an understanding of the structure of your sources and their genesis, how they came into being, and also their effect on the world, especially uh, an effect that has some legal, legal implications. And it's one of the classic disciplines for medievalists, not for other historians, for inexplicable reasons, but for medievalists. And I began to educate myself seriously in that discipline. I'd studied it at Oxford as part of my graduate degree um, under a, a very good teacher, Pierre Chaplet, but I hadn't uh, really stayed with it after that. So I worked my way back into it. And at the same time, um, University College London, where, uh, I, um, uh, as I said, I was based, uh, like most uh, good British universities was introducing master's courses with a view to preparation for PhDs. Previously, there had been master's courses and good ones, but most people went straight onto the PhD from their BA. Whereas from some point, I think in the 90s, um, the government decided that uh, that was why so few people finished their PhDs, and therefore pretty much made it compulsory to do a master's first. So we got one going. And our master's, I think, was rather distinctive in that it gave more attention to the technical skills that a medieval historian or other literary scholar in the medieval field would need. And those technical skills were, above all, paleography and diplomatic. Uh, At the same time, I put on a content course on the medieval papacy, which was where my own research was. Drifting, well, why why was it drifting towards the medieval papacy? Um, I think I had been influenced by reading even before I went to university. Uh, von Ranke's history of the popes, uh, or rather the review of it by Macaulay, and now Macaulay and von Ranke were both Protestants, but they had a powerful sense of the grandeur of papal history. And I recommend anyone to Google Lord Macaulay's essay on von Ranke's history of the Popes, which you can find on the internet easily enough, in which he points out what an extraordinary institution it is. It's the institution that goes goes back further than any other institution that's functioning today. It's true. It's the longest standing government still working in world history. Um, a, a fine historian, Tony Grafton, the Princeton, once said to me, oh, well, the Chinese imperial um, monarchy has been going longer. But in fact, that's not really correct. It, it, in, historically, it begins after the papacy had become a governmental force uh, about a century, and a century, century and a half later. And also there was this long period of about half a millennium when it was basically purely symbolic and the real government was done by the shoguns. So the papacy is a government that has been in action." ruling um since late antiquity since since the fourth century in a in an, in a, a real hands-on sense um but it's different from other governments as as i said and this is in a way is the the problem that um has led up to this book in that most governments uh, have can use force to get resources and with those resources They can reward the people who work for them. Um, uh, Army, police, civil servants use modern terms. They they can compel people to pay up. And uh, that sounds rather negative, but that's how all our governments work, including today. Uh, I don't think um, any government would say well you know if you feel like making a voluntary contribution to the state then we'd be very grateful but uh, but uh, obviously um, that's up to you no they they forced people to do it and the papacy uh, never did that and although I mean they couldn't do that because they had their lands in the center of uh, Italy but they 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 didn't have any physical control over anyone anywhere anywhere else. So the the big question of papal history is, uh, well, why did why did people want papal government and how did popes meet that demand? And that that's the question that grew up. So um, I was thinking about this question while teaching my substantive course on the medieval papacy, which I uh, taught for taught for two decades and more. But I was also teaching diplomatic to an amazing um, group of students. And because we had such a focus on learning how to deal with manuscripts and documents at UCL, increasingly we attracted amazingly good students. I think uh, the record of the students on that MA is incomparable in um, the history of British master's degrees in the field, the number who went on to do funded doctoral students is is quite extraordinary. Um, some at UCL, but others at Oxford, Cambridge, um, in the United States, Princeton um, took several and other um, famous universities in the States. And so I was discussing all these issues with um, tremendously gifted and interesting students. One of them, you did uh, one of your uh, um, sessions with uh, Ben Savile. He came out of that degree. Yes, we were very lucky to have him on the podcast. Uh, uh, Yes, indeed. And so he um, uh, studied, um, I think, both courses, both the papal history and the diplomatic very uh, brilliantly. Uh, And there were very many others. So this is the ideal situation for a scholar to be able to talk about your work at an advanced level with really smart and interesting students. And so the book has really been shaped by that. And uh, th- those of my students who took uh, manuscripts and documents at UCL, um, which I um, co-taught with another great coll- colleague, uh, Marigold Norby, but, we, but I did the diplomatic part, um, will recognize many of the ideas that are in the book. Uh, 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 of course, in a way, it's, um, um, it's a tougher read than the classes were because it has all the apparatus of scholarship. Uh, and it doesn't have the back and forth of class discussion, but that those sessions uh, in manuscripts and documents uh, really are what gave me the courage to to write a book like this, because in the course of that kind of teaching, your ideas really begin to crystallize and take shape. They're challenged by your students so that you you begin to work out what the problems are and how to solve them. Um, So I think it was really from teaching the Course on the Medieval Papacy and teaching manuscripts and documents um, in the context of that UCLMA that um, led up to writing this book.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for explaining um, that backstory. Obviously, having read the book now myself hearing that, I'm like, oh, I get it, right? I've read that. I see where this all comes from and how it all came together. Um, so, it's always fascinating to know what the backstory is. Before we get into um, kind of the chronology of the period, I suppose, and my questions about that, I'd love to ask a little bit more on this uh, manuscripts and documents side of things, given just how central it is to the work. Could you take us through how applied diplomatics differs from pure diplomatics?
1: Yes, it's a a difference that goes back almost to the beginnings of diplomatics as a discipline. Those beginnings are in the 17th century and they started with disputes about whether particular papal documents were forged or not. And a Jesuit questioned the validity of some Benedictine foundational documents and the response was, by the inventor of diplomatic as a discipline, a man called Mabillon, who presented criteria which you could use to establish whether a document was genuine or not. So it began with a rather practical aim, and then it expanded. But uh, in the course of the following decades, in the 18th century, it began to bifurcate, take two different paths. Um, There were people who studied it as a standalone discipline, uh, in which you really just study the structure of documents, um, the rules for their genus, et cetera, almost in isolation. Um, and they are rather like some archaeologists today who will say, if you're studying the archaeology of Roman Britain, you shouldn't know Latin, if possible, because it might prejudice your interpretation of the material evidence. Uh, and then there were others who said diplomatic is part of history and it needs to be integrated with concrete historical problems. And the person who was most articulate about that was uh, an 18th century professor at Göttingen, Gattacher, uh, who, reviewing a one of the great contributions to the other sort of diplomatics said, um, you know, they really need to explain why it's worth going to so much trouble um, if um, it's not serving any other purpose but itself. And he was well aware that diplomatics should be Part of a historical interpretation and serve that. Uh, now, uh, that's not to say that the pure diplomatics which treats itself as a discipline in its own right isn't useful. Um, in fact, in writing the book, the, the standard textbooks um, by Rabbi Kauskas, which is in, uh, uh, was written in Latin, and then the later Italian version, and the uh, versions in German and Italian by Thomas Frenz, uh, have been absolutely invaluable to me, uh, I rather thought my students would fall upon them. I remember g- um, going to the library the sorry the um, bookshop of the Gregorian University in Rome, which was where the only copies of um, rahaususcus's handbook were Accessible, and I bought—I don't know—perhaps a dozen copies to give to UCL Library, thinking my students would fall upon them. But um, it was all very dry, and it was all in Latin, so most of those copies stayed in the library. Um, but um, uh, I tried to give them the substance verbally instead. So the, the, these—the pure diplomatics—really just focuses on the rules, on the different types of document, and treats it all as hermetically sealed almost from the rest of history and the applied diplomatics uh, tries to bring the two together to use diplomatic to solve historical problems and this was very um, clearly formulated by a great Austrian scholar um, Heinrich Fichte now uh, where he compared the two kinds of diplomatics to like d- two branches of a religious order. Um, one where which believes in sticking very narrowly to the rule and the other which is prepared to be a bit laxer about it. Um, but you can see that he believed that diplomatics should be open to history in general. And that uh, is the kind I've been doing. In a way, it's the gap it fills because... There are these textbooks of pure diplomatics that already exist, um, not in English, but still they're there. And there's quite a lot of good technical literature in article form uh, for the Middle Ages, at least, uh, on applied diplomatic, but to try and synthesize that, um, working, also working from the documents and show how this discipline answers a historical question. That was my aim. And the historical question was the one we've been talking about, which is how on earth was the papacy able to actually run a government without the usual resources of a state? And I think the answer is to be found in diplomatic. Diplomatic doesn't explain why people wanted papal government. It's a different question, but they did. And there was an increasing demand for it. And how that demand was met is something that Diplomatic can help us understand.
0: And that's exactly what I would now like to ask you about, um, given that we've got the background of how the book came to be and that very helpful explanation um, behind the methods and the ways of thinking that enable us to answer the questions. So moving roughly chronologically through this, um, as you said, people are demanding help from the popes. And um, And I was intrigued to read in the book that quite often in the early part, the kind of general category for this was resolving uncertainty. That's usually what the popes were, that the advice was being sought for. What sorts of things were popes being asked to sort out that were in this broad category of resolving uncertainties?
1: Yes. um, uh, That um, is something I do know a bit about because my previous two books were one of them was entirely on that and the other the first half was on that there are two books on papal jurisprudence and uh, they are a bit different from books that medievalists usually write because they go way back into late antiquity is what we is the period we're talking about um i think um if we're moving forward chronologically uh, and most medievalists even very good ones don't have much idea of what the papacy was doing um before let's say the carolingian period I was reading something recently by a fine medievalist who was saying, basically, there's hardly any mention of the papacy in the early Middle Ages. Um, my friend and colleague Rosamond McKittrick wrote a book called The Invention of the Papacy, which is basically about the Carolingian period. Um, Sir Richard Southern, uh, in his uh, great Penguin book on the papacy, uh, treats it essentially as being a place of pilgrimage rather than a, a locus of government. But if you look at Lake Antiquity, you find that there is government in spades with um, the papacy uh, and uh, that, the, you know, that if you read the very fine book published in the 30s by Eric Kasper, who's one of the, the, the very best historians, perhaps the best historian who's ever written about the papacy, a victim of the Nazis, um, he's uh, Jewish uh, in origin, Protestant, Um Uh, Then he talks about the first decretal age, the first age of papal decretals, um, and that is the fifth century. So the popes are sending out decretals. And as you say, we need to explain why. Well, I think um, there isn't really a sociology of uncertainty, but there should be. If you if you try to do searches in JSTOR or in you know the British Library catalogue etc., uncertainty tends to get attracted uh, in two different directions. It gets attracted towards risk, questions of risk and rational choice theory. What uh, what you you know how you weigh up. How much you want something against how certain you are to get it is the basis of rational choice theory or towards moral uncertainty and how you deal with that. But um, this kind of uncertainty is something different. And I think it explains a great deal of papal history, also the history of other religions. There's a, a, a comparative history to be written of the ways in which religions deal with uncertainty. But in the case of the papacy, the sequence seems to have been something like this. Um, Firstly, Christianity is quite a complicated religion and was quite early on in that it has quite a variety of systems that develop uh, more or less autonomously. Just to take two examples, there was a system of rituals, above all, say, baptism, but also the ordination of priests. And there was a system of the liturgical year, the the ritual year. Um, And there was a, a lot of uncertainty about how these related to each other. Uh, what which um, sacraments you should perform at which times in the liturgical year. Could you perform baptism um, at any time of year or did it go at particular times of year? And there weren't any answers to this. Um, this, was, this sort of question was a problem in late antiquity because uh, what you had is a lot of city churches which by the 4th century were big and flourishing uh, and they each kind of developed their own traditions about how to deal with questions like that. Another question would be how you deal with returning heretics. Do you need to rebaptize them? If you do or if you don't, can they then um, continue to operate as priests if they were priests in the heretical uh, religion? So lots of different churches have different ways of dealing with these problems. And that might have worked out okay, except for the fact that there's a huge amount of social mobility between these different cities in the Roman Empire. Um, So lots of people are moving, say, from uh, Milan to Lyon or to Rome, and they're finding that all the things that they thought were Christian practice to court are different in the other place. So it wasn't something where you could really say, well, you know, everybody do their own thing in their own church because there's so many people moving between different cities and churches that it was really disturbing for them to find people um, that, that were not following the rules that they expected. And these rules, people often class them under discipline. But actually, a lot of these rules, they're in a gray area between discipline and fundamental doctrines and convictions. Um, things like the bapt- the validity of heretical baptism. That's, you know, do you need to rebaptize somebody? Um, is that discipline or doctrine? Um, there's a lot of areas which are in a field of force between fundamental belief and what you might call, you know, The positive law of a religion, uh, just disciplinary practice. It's not clear even to which they belong. Now, the first systematic attempt to deal with this kind of uncertainty was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 in the fourth century, called by the Emperor Constantine. And Constantine wanted to bang heads together so that Christians stopped disagreeing with each other. So in addition to giving an answer to the question of of whether Jesus Christ was as much God as God the Father, which is what it's mostly known for, the uh, Council of Nicaea also dealt with a lot of these questions such as the kind I've been discussing. And Christianity appeared to be moving very fast into a system by which, from being a persecuted religion, into a system by which the emperor would actually organized councils, which would decide questions like this, would resolve uncertainties. And that is how it more or less continued in the eastern part of the empire, which survived until the 15th century in Byzantium. But in the west, um, the, the the empire hit choppy waters in the late um, 4th century, and emperors were too busy trying to you know, keep the show on the road to deal with these sorts of questions. Uh, and instead, people began to turn to the Bishop of Rome for responses to these questions. And the Bishop of Rome had a model in the Roman Emperor, not just as a, somebody who got councils to resolve uncertainties, but also uh, the, the, the pagan Roman Empire as a source of law. Um, Roman law classically was made by people writing to the emperor with a legal problem and the emperor sending a a rescript, which gave a solution. And if those solutions created a new precedent, they became part of the law. So paradoxically, Roman law begins in a way rather like the English common law. But anyway, that's uh, uh, another matter. So there was a whole way of dealing with legal problems which the Roman empress had developed and the popes take that over take over the language the structure of the replies and apply it to the sort of religious problems about baptism liturgical year etc um, etc et um, that were coming to them um, and um, it, it's uh, the people who ask these questions it's not always clear what what they thought about papal authority. Um, but they certainly wanted answers, and the the popes provided answers. And especially from the late fourth century and in the fifth century, um, there's a whole burst of these papal decretals answering these questions. And it's a response to demand, mostly from bishops. And the bishops, the popes couldn't enforce their answers, but, but the bishops could. Mostly these responses related to the clergy or sacraments to ritual. So the bishops could enforce them. The bishops controlled their own clergy, who tended to be a tightly knit group in, in in their city. So it it did have some teeth. It had episcopal teeth. And then these decretals were collected together with conciliar decisions and transmitted by canon law collections. So uh, the, um, uh, the first papal documents are fairly explicitly legal documents. Um, They are jurisprudence. They're replying to these queries about religious matters, but uh, matters that would be religious under almost any definition, because I know there's the whole question of how you define religious. Um, But they're replying in the same way that Roman emperors replied on purely secular matters. Uh, And, Mm. um, uh, you know, things like celibacy, celibacy of clergy is coming in in the West as an obligation, in the fourth century, uh, uh, the, you know the idea had been around that it was a good idea you know it' was a nice idea for a priest to be celibate, but the idea that priests had to be celibate um, was really took hold in the fourth century probably there's a lot of debate about it but but that's a likely scenario mm-hmm. um, and it was a very different kind of celibacy though from celibacy as you know as we know it in the Catholic Church today it was celibacy within marriage you 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 became a cleric fairly young you passed through a whole series of stages up a hierarchy of promotion with gaps between them and only when you had become a subdeacon did you have to face the question did you want to go on for further promotion and become a deacon or did you want to stop where you were and if you wanted to go on for further promotion you and your wife had to take a decision to stop having sex you went on living together but um, you live together as brother and sister. Um, and if you were prepared to do that, then um, you could become a deacon, then a priest and then a bishop. And uh, 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 there's a lot to be said about this system and why it could work in late antiquity and how it w- wouldn't work later on. Um, but, but the question were, you know, at what, how to regulate the stages? At what point do you have to stop having sex? What are the, mm-hmm. what are the intermediate stages as you move up? Um, the discipline and these are the sort of things they're religious questions but popes answered them in the manner it's the form if not the content of how roman emperors answer questions
0: mm. no that's that's really interesting on a number of levels and um, particularly kind of given that we don't necessarily think about sort of how did those rules develop and how do you think about them and also what is the role of the pope at that time period um, but speaking of the form as well as the content. Can we stay on the question of form for a moment? Um, Because I certainly reading this in the book was going, OK, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see why there'd be questions around that that you need the pope to answer. But I hadn't thought or I hadn't expected to read something I found quite surprising, um, which is that some of these answers coming back from the popes in the tone, as you said, of the emperor, um, But their Latin was not necessarily very good, particularly in the 4th and 5th centuries. Um, You know, they were advising on all these questions. I'm sure the content was important, but they didn't seem to have very good Latin. And yet, as you've just explained to us, there isn't a drop in demand. People keep asking them for advice. So why didn't they have very good Latin? And also, why didn't anyone care?
1: Yeah. No, that's um, um, yes. Um, well, just to clarify, in the in the fourth and fifth centuries, their Latin was fine, fiendishly difficult, I may say. Um, I think it would be very difficult for a classicist, but also difficult for a medievalist, uh, a classic sort of thirteenth century medievalist, because it it's very complex. But there was there's no problem about them writing good Latin in that period. The problem comes. Um, a bit later, in probably in the second half of the 8th century. That's when Mm, um, what you're talking about really kicks in. And uh, it's something that took me aback too. And it really um, was only born on me when I, I... I like to translate documents. I don't feel I've really understood something until I translate it. And it's only when you translate a document that you notice if the Latin is completely going off the rails. And I think that um, uh, most historians of the period are unaware of this. Uh, I mean, partly, I, I have to say, the the level of Latin among um, the younger generation of medievalists um, is not as high as it used to be. And so in some cases, they wouldn't recognise when Latin is going off the rails as long as they can understand the content. Um, and... Uh, And classicists have a sort of prejudice that all Latin um, declined after the end of the Roman Empire. But in fact, it's more complicated than that. Um, Firstly, some people went on writing good Latin after the end of the Roman Empire, um, right through, notably in England. Um, There's excellent Latin written by people like the Venerable Bede. Um, uh, So it wasn't impossible. Um, And then secondly... Um, There is a general decline in Latin, which is, you know, is um, uh, later, uh, post-classical Latin does get quite bad in many parts of Europe. And this is a well-known phenomenon. Um, But what most classicists don't realise is that in the late 8th century, in the ninth century, under the massive influence of Charlemagne, they fix it up. Charlemagne starts an educational programme which is amazingly effective. And what classicists don't realize is that by, by the mid century north of the Alps, there are loads of people who write absolutely correct Latin. Uh, so the problem, in a way, had been solved at least at the level of texts, not so much at the level of documents, but the level of texts. Um, monasteries in Northern Europe producing texts in, in Latin that nobody can object to. So the question then remains is um, why uh, precisely at this time does papal Latin take a nosedive? And I should add, it's not all papal Latin. You get individual figures like Pope Nicholas I in the ninth century who write very good Latin. So it wasn't that it couldn't be done, but most people could not. And it explains a lot, too, about um, the papacy in the period, how... Um, they in a way if they got into a controversy with people north of the Alps um, they kind of adopted a don't explain they'll only complain attitude because they didn't really have people around them who could deal with the legal expertise of monks north of the Alps monks and uh, and other clergy north of the Alps so um, why did they why did they let their Latin decline nobody's really addressed this question that I can, See, um, I think it's that to some extent it's that rising high in papal government, such as it was in the eighth century, um, was not so much a thing for your intellectual types as things for people who are you know good at getting power, um, uh, uh, uh. people who were interested in you know, more, the more hands-on aspects of government rather than the, 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 the kind of um, academically trained civil servant type. Um, uh, um, uh, Rosamond McKittrick um, once um, compared the, the papal administration in this period to like the British civil service, and she's right in the sense that it kept going. Um, but, of course, the difference is the British civil service of people who can usually write decent English. And if you started finding letters from uh, uh, a permanent secretary written, you know, with uh, without evident knowledge of how to use commas or um, the subjunctive, then you would wonder about the rest of the administration. And this is what you find with the papacy. As I say, it I didn't discover this, but it hasn't really. Um, uh, one of the great founders of Diplomatic, Harry Breslau, noticed this um, uh, 100 years ago, but it hasn't people haven't thought about it enough. Um and the explanation is a bit mysterious. I think it's just, it's rather like the decline of Latin in our own time. People at schools and universities have just stopped thinking it's so important. And I think maybe in the papal administration, they thought, well, you know, it's not that important. I mean, look at Oxford, for goodness sake. Um, uh, when people come to do uh, uh, a master's at Oxford, um, they're given a three-week Latin course in medieval history. And then there's some voluntary classes, so uh, it you know it's clearly not thought the most important thing now. And I think it may. <laughs> sorry, in this, on, cu- cu- cut in. In this yeah. case,
0: in this case, it could very well be because of what you answered earlier, right? If demand is not changing, if people are still asking the pope for help, yeah. even if they're not that impressed by the Latin, maybe it's all right that the Latin's not as good. I guess. Well,
1: um, yeah, and then I should I should clarify again because the nature of the documents that the popes are producing is changing. And yeah, that I that I should explain. Whereas there's this great burst of decretals in the fourth and fifth century, and they are solving problems. In the period that we're now talking about of bad Latin, um, what popes mostly have to produce are privileges for monasteries. Monasteries come to them and say, we want a privilege that we can frighten off people who t- want to take our land. Um and maybe protect us from our bishop. And that might be the same thing. You know, I suspect the great enemy of monasteries in the early Middle Ages was their own bishops. Because if you think about it, think today um, of fundraising. Um, if um, a college in Oxford is raising funds, it will be competing with the university, which is also raising funds. And they, they, they have a very uneasy relationship with each other. And the same with monasteries and bishops. Up until monasticism became common, sort of sixth century, um, the most lay donations, and there were massive, massive lay donations, went to the bishops. Once monasteries are there in large numbers, then that's an alternative way to, you know, to um, direct your generosity. And I think that monasteries, <laughs> they were obviously afraid of, um, you know, bad bad lay lords but I think they were afraid of bishops too who would take their land and that would explain why they wanted papal privileges because a papal privilege was something that a bishop at least would be likely to respect. Now these papal privileges um, these are things that um, in his uh, um, contribution to your great series um, uh, Miranda Ben Savile talked about and they are Extraordinary documents, they're written on parchment, um, they may be three metres long, uh, and they're written in a, a, a script which is called the Roman Curiale, which is a base, a, basically a late Roman script, which nobody could read, or hardly anyone could read. <clears throat> hardly any scholars today can read it. There's, uh, there's not all that much in it. It's been transcribed, but, um, but you can have a training in paleography of the normal kind and you wouldn't be able to read it. Um, So what these monasteries wanted was a document which they could hold up and frighten off somebody who was trying to take their land. And that somebody might well be the bishop. And for that reason, they might also want to be exempt in varying degrees from the bishop's authority, because otherwise he could instrumentalize his ritual powers over them to weaken them in a conflict over land. So some of that is speculative, but I think there's a lot in it. Um, so um, uh, the result is that you get these amazing documents that really do look um, uh, uh, quite astonishing, uh, but uh, if there are Latin mistakes in it, nobody notices because, you, because they're illegible. So it is a bit different situation from the decretals of the first period, the 4th and 5th century. These are documents which are really... For sh- it's their appearance that matters. And, you know, Mm. you say to somebody who is trying to take your land, if you're a monastery, we have a privilege from the Pope saying that St. Peter and Paul will be incredibly angry with you if you take Mm -hmm. our land and you show them this. And they're not going to be checking the grammar. Right. But if they're a bishop, they will take it seriously.
0: No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I think... It is, you know, you're you're essentially waving around a banner, right? No, don't you dare take
1: this look. At... Yeah, you're waving around a banner, and it it's a very impressive banner. Um, mm. And um, uh, the uh, in this particular period, which is like eighth, ninth, tenth century, the exact wording is not what people are reading. Right. No, exactly. But they, you've got these huge things. I mean, you know, Ben Savile described it very well in, in his own contribution. You know, they look amazing and they're different from anything else that people see in the way of documents.
0: Right. And, and um, again, the, the point some, is not the grammatical purity who, of who the document. Who
1: about the grammar? They, nobody, and this, for the same reason historians haven't noticed these grammatical mistakes um, because <laughs> they, you know, they're, it's, they're, they're written in very grandiloquent Latin. Mm. You know, it looks very fine. It's only if you try and translate it, you realize they don't know their case endings.
0: No, but it's very interesting. Um, So I'm glad you included it in the book and told us a bit about it here. Um, I'd love to ask you a bit about kind of a part of the documents where I think the wording, the content is important. And I'm guessing as well that these parts are probably less shiny looking, less cool looking, (laughs) Uh, but they seem quite important. So can you tell us please about the preambles of privileges and why these have important short- and long-term effects for answering this bigger question of the power of the papacy?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, it links up to the uh, early question um, about the nature of applied diplomatic, because these preambles, which are called arengai or proemia in Latin, were the subject of a study by the guy I mentioned before, Heinrich Fichte now, who realised that... they were very interesting for the long-term history of mentalities. Previously, historians tended to skip from them to the substantive part because that was what told them facts. Um, but uh, Fichter now saw that they told them, they told us about how people thought, um, and that they could be also a source of soft power. Uh, And so he wrote a book which was just called Arenga, which you could translate as preamble. um, And it traced them from late antiquity, even from pagan times um, through to the late Middle Ages. Um, So um, uh, I think they're particularly important for the history of the papacy for the following reason not not quite so much not for these privileges that i've been talking about so much but actually for what we were talking about before that which is these decretals from the the fifth century late fourth fifth century okay so the pattern is this people have a problem which might be like um, can you give communion to somebody at the point of death if they haven't finished their penance you can absolve their sins but can you give them communion this was a one of the uncertainties The answer was yes, but um, uh, but people, uh, for reasons that we just discussed, people really want answers to resolve these uncertainties. So they write to the Pope. When the Pope writes back, he starts off by a long paragraph about papal power and how great it is, and how uh, you know it descends from uh, uh, its apostolic, that it comes from the commission of Jesus to Peter. So. There's a good piece of papal propaganda at the beginning of the response. So uh, we, when when the question is put to the Pope, we don't know what the bishop who asked the question thought about papal authority. I mean, he obviously thought the Pope was the go-to guy, that much. But we don't know what he thought about um, the, you know, papal uh, supremacy, Pope's successor of the Peter, etc. But in the reply before the Pope gets down to business in his answer, that is what he emphasises. And these replies are kept. Um, So again, this is a different category of documents from those privileges we were just talking about, but they're kept in um, collections of canon law, church law, um, which are collections of decisions of councils and precisely of papal decretals. And these have a very robust transmission, which actually gets stronger and stronger in the course of the early middle ages um and that transmission includes these preambles so generations and generations of people who are looking for solutions in canon law collections um will be seeing all this propaganda for the papacy uh and uh and By the time of the Gregorian reform in the 11th century, uh, Gregorian reform, papal revolution, um, I guess many people at the time didn't see it as a reform. Then an awareness of papal claims to be successors of St. Peter has really sunk into the clerical consciousness of Europe. So these preambles are an important vehicle for it. And they go back before. The Liber Pontificalis, etc., um, uh, which is, has such a diffusion in Carolingian times, that go back to late antiquity and they're transmitted already in late antiquity in canon law collections which have a wide circulation. So they really help um, s- open people to the idea of the Pope as the head of the church, as the successor of St. Peter.
0: Mm. And this is, of course, going back to the question of kind of how do they get people to listen to them Um, without the bureaucracy, without the resources of the state? This is, I think, part of the answer, um, which is really quite fascinating to kind of think about how this would accumulate over time. Um, if we're moving then through time, we're up to, what, about the 11th century perhaps now? Yeah. Um, I'd like for us to maybe skip forward a little bit as you discuss in the book that the sort of routine business of the papacy, the kind of the various things that they're commonly asked to do, increases um, from the 13th century onwards. And of course, if we're thinking about a lack of bureaucracy, a lack of state resources, this is a question, right? How do they manage to keep up with all of this? Can you walk us through how examining the diplomatics of this kind of routine, normal stuff, maybe not the shiny things, but the more frequent things, how does this understand how they kept up with things as they were asked to do more?
1: Yeah. I I mean, firstly, just a word on why they're asked to do more. Uh, In some ways, there are close parallels between the 12th century and the 5th century. And these I explored in, in um, uh, my, my second book on papal jurisprudence. In both cases, you've got a whole bunch of um, ecclesiastical systems evolving autonomously and interacting with each other and causing problems for each other. And it's rather like, you know, software today. If Apple produces a new software, some of its apps will stop working. Um Um, uh, UCL introduced a new software for graduate applications, which was incompatible with its own browser. Whenever systems are evolving, they become incompatible with other systems. And just as in the 5th century, um, because of Christianization, so in the 12th century, because of the papal reform, there are a lot of problems of that kind, which create demand for papal decisions. And also, there is a huge demand for papal legal intervention, a strong desire for somebody at the top to bring disputes to a close. And if you think about it, um, disputes end either with a strong person winning or with law, by and large. Um, And we live in societies where they tend to end with law, but in the early Middle Ages, often disputes would simply end with the stronger person winning, like two dogs. One of them realises the other is stronger than the other. Anyway, there is is this demand for um, papal... Judicial decisions, and also a demand increasingly um, for um, papal um, privileges um, on a on a larger scale um, than um, uh, uh, had been the case uh, ever before, and also for papal appointments to jobs, which um, is is another story. So, how did popes meet it? Well. This business of not having a bureaucracy is something I should explain. Everyone has always assumed the popes had a bureaucracy. You'll find in every textbook they have a bureaucracy. And any class of students imagines the... Papacy at its, you know, high point, if you like, in the 13th century, as having a series of offices, you know, like Westminster or um, or or any or Washington, and in those offices, um, in those buildings, there would be offices, or maybe open plan, and there'd be people working away, and those people would have salaries, uh, and they would have managers, and their managers would have managers. They imagined all of that, and that was all blown apart by a wonderful book by um, another um, uh, German language scholar, Brigida Schwartz, um, who uh, took Max Weber's checklist of what counted as a bureaucracy, his ideal type of a bureaucracy, and used it as one should use ideal types to ask how many items on this checklist does one actually find in papal government. And she found, for example, that the checklist said there is a difference between home, and office, which until COVID was pretty standard in bureaucracies. She found that the people who drove papal government along worked from home, not in an office. Salaries. She found that they were not paid salaries. They were paid by the piece. Line managers. She found that there were no line managers. They took it in turns to manage each other like like a sort of trade union or a guild. So, so um, there wasn't the bureaucracy as we understood it. There's some elements of a bureaucracy as we understand it. And the other thing is, the popes never had enough money. This is something people don't realise enough because everyone thinks about the papacy in the Middle Ages as being enormously rich. Um, but just to give some calculations I've just been doing, um, uh, in about, about 1300, the Bishop of Winchester had an income which was only about, which was about 15% of that of the papacy. Bishop of Winchester, one bishop, one very rich bishop, and uh, he didn't have a state to run because the popes had the papal state to run, and he didn't have the universal church to administer. Uh, whereas the, the King of England, in one in admittedly exceptional year, could raise an amount of money, which was about seven times the average income of the papacy. So the, the popes never had a huge income to draw on, so they had to find systems that would enable them to to meet the demand, because what could easily have happened is that people would write to the Pope saying, we have a legal dispute, um, please resolve it for us, and the Pope would never reply. You know, like people who don't reply to their emails, after a while, people stop emailing them. Um, and that is what happened with the caliphs in Islam, and it happens with Shankiyakarias in um, uh, in uh, some great uh, movements within India. Um uh, unless there is a bureaucracy to give a unless, sorry, I won't say bureaucracy. Unless there's an administration to give a reply, then people stop asking. But the popes always found ways to give replies, and that's what diplomatic can tell us. Um, and I guess that's that's what you're you're asking about now. Um, and um, they found ways to deal with the problem that they often um, gave. Uh, they offered jobs to. Several people at the same time, because they didn't have records that enable them to check. And they found ways of dealing with the enormous number of requests for papal adjudication of disputes. That these aren't disputes between laymen, they're disputes between clerics, but there were enormous numbers of clerics in the period. So it's a whole governmental system. And they were marriage cases too. The Pope. Pope decided cases involving the validity of marriage, ultimately. So huge numbers of disputes coming to the papacy, and they had to develop a software that would enable them to deal with it without having a properly paid bureaucracy. So that's that's the question. I don't know if you want me to launch into how they did that now.
0: Um, If you want to say a little bit about it, sure.
1: Yeah. Okay, so to give uh, two examples. First of all, papal privileges, and in diplomatic, these are called letters of grace, and they look different, from ones dealing with executive decisions. Um, in the thirteenth century, popes did not keep a record of the job offers they had given. There's there are a lot of clerical jobs, benefices, um, which um, basically had a much larger income than uh, an individual priest needed. And this goes back to the economic origins of um, uh, um, ecclesiastical systems in the Middle Ages. It just depended on how much had been given originally. So it was perfectly normal to have to pay somebody to do the actual job and to take the rest of the income and be an administrator for the king or the pope or be an academic or whatever. So um, popes started granting Benefices like this or canonries of cathedrals, which had become by the 13th century a kind of um, um, a post without many duties. But they didn't keep records. So they would often grant the same canonry, you know, um, to several different people, which is obviously pretty problematic. So how did they deal with it? Well, they dealt with it by inventing a set of rules which ranked papal letters like a pack of cards, like in bridge or in poker. So that if two people turned up both with a papal letter, giving them a particular job. You could compare the two letters, apply the rules, and you could see if, so to speak, the ace of spades out-trumped the three of hearts. So the, if you, you, there were technical rules which enabled you to order people with letters, giving them the same privilege. So in, in one way, it sounds pretty desperate, but in another way, it meant that the Pope could always say yes when people asked for something. And it meant that you had a way of Discriminating at the other end. And at the same time as you granted a job like this, you always appointed people who were responsible for carrying it out on the ground. And this takes me to the second way they managed, which was delegation. So um, delegation is the idea that you can make somebody the Pope for a day for a particular purpose. Uh, And um, this is absolutely central to how they managed to rule Europe. Uh, um, legally and administratively, because the popes didn't—they didn't have agents like the king of England has sheriffs, who are his agents. The bishops were not exactly the pope's agents. I mean, they accepted him as head of the church, but in until the fourteenth century, he didn't appoint them, and they—they um, they were not his bureaucratic um, uh, go-tos. So, um, uh, the, the popes. Um, uh had to find some other system and the system was judge's delegate so if somebody comes with a problem to the pope a dispute Um, the pope appoints a local person as a judge delegate and that might be a canon of a cathedral or a local university professor and he usually popes two appoints two or three and says if if you can't all do it then two of you can do it or if two of you can't do it then one of you can do it and these guys had papal authority to judge the dispute Um, And um, the beauty of this was that the Pope at the center didn't need to think about it, nor did his administrators need to think about it. They just needed to appoint somebody on the spot who would think about it and who would have papal authority to decide it. Um, And it got cleverer than that. The problem was, you know, the Pope didn't know uh, uh, who was who in Portugal or in Yorkshire. And so a problem with the system was people suggested judges, and of course you would always suggest a judge who would favor you if you were the plaintiff. So the Pope Innocent III, at the beginning of the 13th century, introduced a system by which at the very last stage when you had got a letter appointing the judges, finally drafted, after, you know, going through the system, it could be stopped at a stage called the Audientia by the lawyer of the other side and who could send you back to square run, one, just like in um, uh, Snakes and Ladders. Uh, and so it was in your interest to actually propose a judge who was acceptable for your opponent. And it's a pretty fair inference, not just mine, but also by the um, the, the greatest expert on this, Peter ahead in the last generation, that probably plaintiff and defendant even agreed among themselves on what judges. So it enabled the Pope to give an authoritative decision um, without anyone in Rome needing to think about the case. And, uh, and in a way, that was how they did it. And that was how they, they did executive authority too. And because each, um, each appointment of a delegate was a kind of one-off, um, it was difficult to refuse. I mean, it was a great honour to be made a papal judge delegate or a papal delegate for a particular case. And you needed to have a good reason to refuse. It wasn't like a permanent commitment it's a bit like in the universities. If you're asked to to be an external examiner, it's not done to say no. You can only say no if you've done it too many times,
0: right? And you so, have some other pressing that. reason. Pardon? Or you have some other pressing That's reason, other but other you have to make a reason. case. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, but it's uh, um, um, but uh, but it, basically, there's an assumption that you will say yes if you're asked. You just hope hmm. you're not asked. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so th- those are some of the ways they did it.
0: Yeah, no that that's that's very helpful. Um I'd love to ask you kind of to poke at that in a little bit more detail for some of the aspects um because it's it is really interesting. We do have this idea of, you know, the secretaries in their rooms and
1: to yeah. understand
0: yeah. the reality is fascinating. So if we think then about this obviously very complicated process of sending a petition, getting yeah. a response back, you want to as you've just explained, select the right judge, etc. Is, you know, is that the main difficulty? Like how difficult is it really to send a petition, get a response back? Were there shortcuts? I mean, so uh, agreeing at the beginning who the judge would be so you didn't get sent back, that seems like a shortcut. What were the other ones to get through this process?
1: Okay, well, you, you rightly asked about the routine things. I think it could be done very easily. First, imagine, say, you're in Durham Durham Cathedral Priory, and you're having a dispute with um, another church, let's say another bishop nearby. But, um, and so in Durham, they have the formulary that the papacy used for appointing people to judge particular sorts of cases. It's a typology of different kinds of cases. And they have a copy of this in Durham. So you could pick the formula. You could actually pick the type of letter that was probably going to be used, just as in our own time, um, solicitors have claim forms and they know the claim forms. If you go to your solicitor and you, you say, I want to sue the pants off King's College for you know something or other, um, the solicitor will know if there's a claim form that deals with that kind of case and which claim form. So um, if you've got somebody who knows some canon law um, in your own institution, you can probably pick the claim form yourself if not you've got a lawyer in rome who will help you do it so uh, this is so these are writs pretty much like writs as they was operated nowadays they're called claim forms basically the same thing so you just pick the right form first of all um and uh, you could actually draft the letter that would eventually go out to appoint the delegates um and uh, either m- maybe back in durham or if not your your proctor in rome Uh, Who, um, If it's a big place like Durham, you probably have your own lawyer in Rome, but um, uh, um, but others, you know, they would just find a lawyer, use a lawyer in Rome, um, would make a draft of the letter, which is, as I say, it's a form letter. It just says... um, uh, um, uh, so-and-so claims that um, uh, they have taken property from me, this would be a cleric doing it, Um, you must judge this case. Um, And there would be others for more complicated kinds of cases, actually a whole series of different kinds of cases. So you would pick a form. Um, In Rome, somebody would do a draft, which might be no work at all because you basically fill in the proper names. Maybe you fill in the names of the proposed judges that you've agreed with your opponent. Then one papal administrator casts an eye over it, the abbreviator. If it's been done right, and if you've got a decent proctor, it will have been done right, it goes straight to be copied. And then the, the scribe gets paid, because he's paid by the piece. It's not exorbitant. And then it goes to the audientia. If, if um, you've sorted it out with your opponent in advance, the audientia nods it through. Um, and it just goes out with a judge delegate. Um, probably um, uh, it's taken back by somebody who's going to your diocese anyway. So y- you, uh, it's quite easy for the punters who want to get a papal judge delegate because they or their lawyer find the form. And hmm. um, if it's done correctly, then it just goes into Rome and goes out of Rome without anyone having mm. to think. Very similar to the system of writs developed by the English king.
0: Right. No, exactly. And, and definitely helps make sense of the idea of there not being a massive bureaucratic staff. In that yeah. list of steps, though, um, the Pope is not mentioned. Yeah. To what extent does the Pope read any of this? It, does it go up to the Pope? What's his role?
1: Well, in important things, absolutely it does. And if you read an account of what's called the the ITER, the the journey or the chef's gang um, of papal administration, the Pope figures very prominently in those descriptions. But those are descriptions of the kind of maximal case where something really important is involved, policy matters or very important people um, in the localities or whatever. Um, One of the things I try to do in the book is to show that actually the Pope need not be involved. And he couldn't be, because there's just too much of it. The number of documents produced is huge. I mean, I I should say there are quite a lot of scribes, but they're all paid by the peace. So they're not paid by salaries, they're paid by the peace. So that way you can have quite, in a way, it's infinitely expandable. Um, Mm. uh, I mean, there were limits. But so uh, if the Pope had actually paid attention to all these documents that went out from Rome, um, he would have need to needed to um, have, you know, uh, um, a thousand hours in every day. So and I think that <laughs> yeah. this, the, the pure diplomatic specialists haven't thought about this enough. You've got to think about how you can manage without. Mm. The, it's a bit like, you know, if somebody writes to the prime minister, they exactly. will a reply, yeah. possibly even in the prime minister's name. But the prime minister will never see all the letters that are written to the prime minister. Or even to a right. minister, it'll be done. It'll be, you know, it, um, there's always has to be. Su- if there's a lot of administration, there has to be a shortcut. And mm-hmm. um, in the case of the papacy, if you look closely at the evidence, you can see that you didn't need to involve the pope unless it was something important.
0: Mm. No, that, and, that definitely and makes and a lot more all sense. All these
1: cases <laughs> were important to the people involved, but they weren't big affairs of state or affairs involving really major players. So, right.
0: Well, or it's someone's asking a question that's already been answered. So great, we can give you the answer we've already given to someone
1: else. Absolutely, you don't have yeah. to
0: recreate it.
1: Or, or rather, the letter. I mean, the, the the letters are often to establish facts, but mm. the the um, the rules that you apply to the facts are already in a formula, and exactly. you just need somebody on the ground. There's a you know a, a key thing in in diplomatic is a phrase: if if it is thus. Halfway through a document, sometimes missed even by very good scholars, you get a long narrative. For example, for a long time, people thought it was forbidden to read the Bible in the vernacular in the Middle Ages because there is a papal document, Innocent III, with a long narrative about how terrible it is about people reading the Bible in the vernacular. And because the person who wrote this up didn't know enough diplomatic, this has got into the literature as a ban on vernacular Bible reading actually you get this long screed that is all from the person who wrote to the pope very often the pope quotes oh. back the pope quotes back whatever somebody has written to him mm-hmm. and then says something like if the facts are as stated or investigate this mm. so the pope's mm-hmm. reply is not actually saying what this first part which is called the narration says Usually, it's telling somebody on the spot to investigate if it's true or if it makes sense.
0: Right. No, and we've heard have to, this. Go find yeah, out.
1: You have to be very alert because you can read these. And this is what happened. With, it's a big question. There you know, was vernacular Bible reading forbidden. And it was a brilliant essay by um, uh, Leonard Boyle who who actually applied diplomatic to it and said, no, he's not saying that. He's quoting right. the letter he received and then says i commission you to investigate this.
0: Well, so I think this raises sort of obliquely, and I'd love to bring it up properly, the question of keeping track of all of this, yeah. right? Obviously, we have a lot of material such that you're able to do this interpretation and write the book and the whole field is. But as you said, the scale of this is quite significant. So how, if there was no bureaucracy in the way we might think of it, how did the popes keep track of all of this?
1: Um, Well, uh, the the answer is that, um, firstly, in the case of settling legal disputes, they didn't really need to, um, because if you appointed a judge's delegate and if the decision was accepted, um, then the pope didn't need to ever know anything more about it. Only if there was an appeal um, would would you know it it would have to be quite a big issue, and the appeal would have to come back to the pope. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to. Similarly, in the 13th century, with these appointments, um, the uh, the The kind of card ranking system meant that the people on the spot could tell which one was valid. So the Pope didn't need to know about it. That said, in the 14th century, papal record keeping does get more sophisticated. uh, And it gets more and more sophisticated with every passing century. Um, I would say, though, that people have overestimated its relative sophistication. People have always assumed that the papacy was ahead in record keeping. And indeed, it was in the early Middle Ages. It, it probably kept registers throughout the early Middle Ages. not certain, but there's quite a lot to suggest that. But from about the 12th century, something like the English monarchy overtakes it fast. And English, the record keeping of the English monarchy is far more sophisticated. Um, so uh, the, the popes play catch up and they, they do begin to record much more. And it is more effective. Um, But, um, and of course, that produces more records for historians to work on. Um, So, uh, but the routine stuff. So, for example, these letters of justice, which appoint judges delegate. So far as I know, there was never any systematic record keeping of that. It wasn't registered. You didn't need to register it.
0: Mm. No, that's a fair point. We tend to think of kind of everything has to be kept track of these days.
1: Yeah, well, um, and and. um, uh, there is a tendency in that direction, but a lot of a lot of what the popes did uh, was not recorded. Mm.
0: No, that's that's interesting. Um, you raised the comparison with the English state, and I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. But before we get to a comparison, I want to stay in this system for just another moment. Um, on the practical side, you've mentioned it a little bit already, but how was this paid for? And given that we've seen some other aspects of the system change over time. Is this piece of it, the payment for it, did that change over time as well?
1: Yeah, it's a, an under-investigated question. So the first thing is the, the routine um, administration that we've been talking about, uh, you pay the administrator directly. And the only bit that goes into the system, I think, is at the end when you get the seal put on it. And part of the fee for that does go into central funds but the main business of copying and checking, etc., um, people are paid by the punters as they go through the system. So uh, um, it's, it, it, in a way, the finances don't go through any central accounting. Um, when you get to the early modern period, nobody has done any work on it. They It's disgracefully badly um, researched. Um, the, the Inquisition... I was talking to an expert on that, may have had some small endowment that helped pay for its administration. The other great um, uh, office, in some ways um, more important, the congregation of the council, nobody knows. Um, I, I So one way it was paid for is that some of the senior people had benefices. And just like I was saying before, some, you know, a uh, uh, benefice... Um, like Embleton uh, up north, as now owned by Merton College, um, was worth about ten times more than uh, a priest needed to live on. So that kind of benefice often goes to an administrator who then pays a salary to a priest to actually do the job on the spot. Um, so uh, s- the senior people at the papal curia would often collect benefices like that, and so that that in a way. Um, uh, c- provided for them. But there are unanswered questions like um, one of the things that happened in the 16th century is that a system of committees is set up, congregations. And these congregations were basically committees of cardinals with specific jobs. The Inquisition was one, the congregation of the council was another, and there were others still. And nobody knows how the staff of these congregations were paid. And I think they were paid for out of the pocket of the cardinals which is one reason why the Cardinals accumulated so many benefits is so much wealth is they were basically paying for their own administrative staff, but nobody has proved this, but uh, nobody's yet hmm. um, investigated it properly. I'm trying well, to find out more about it, but um,
0: anyone listening who wants a research project.
1: <laughs> well, well, I think it would be too hard for somebody starting out, um, but, um, uh, but it's, yeah, cause it's, it's, it's not an easy one. Um, but, it, you know, you follow the money, you want to understand an institution, see how it's financed. But um, but that question just hasn't been asked enough about the papacy.
0: Interesting. Um, I did want to ask you a bit more, as I said, about the comparison with um, states that do have the resources and things that we would think of. Um, you mentioned the English state. Can you take us through maybe a little bit of comparison? Um, you said before the papacy was sort of ahead, but then started playing catch-up. How does yeah. the papacy compare to states that do have these resources in dealing with administration?
1: Well, the one um, I know most about and the one that most is known about is the English monarchy. And I had the the, um, the great delight of teaching MA courses, a different MA course, with my colleague David Carpenter at King's College, your college. And um we were constantly surprised to find out how much more advanced, if record keeping is an advance, um, the English monarchy was. But there's one, uh, the, the, the main comparison I would draw actually is not of you know better or worse, but functional equivalence, because the English monarchy also developed a system that enabled it to provide, to meet the huge voracious demand for judicial resolutions, judicial Decisions without anyone in the centre thinking about it, and this was the writ system. So, just as with these papal formularies, so there are registers of writs. Um, if you, you know, if there is a dispute about who is to inherit a piece of land or who owns a piece of land, from the second, third quarter of the twelfth century rather on, Henry II of England divided some amazing software. To, to decide those questions without anyone at the centre having to get their head around all the complexities of the rights and wrongs of a case. Um, so, for example, the simplest case, um, if there's a dispute over land, often it was going to take forever to decide who owned it because it was complicated by the fact that there'd been an anarchy of Stephen's reign in which people had taken land from each other. There'd been periods when the um, the... the Normandy and England were separate, and so people who are based in Normandy had lost lands but had a good claim to it. going to take forever to sort it out. So Henry II said, all right, we will have a form letter that says that you go to Westminster and you buy the following writ of novel deceasing. That writ is addressed to the sheriff. It tells the sheriff to go to the place where the dispute is to summon a set of locals and tell them that they will have to answer the following question. Who was on this land when the king last went to Normandy? Apparently, everybody always knew when the king had gone to Normandy. And then the same panel of locals would have to turn up at the county court when the king's justice next came to the county court. And the king's justice would say, who was on this land when the king last went to Normandy? And the person whom they um, indicated would get the land back. And then the other person would have to bring a much more complex lawsuit. But what this stopped people doing was taking the law into their own hands because they would have to give it back anyway. Now, just as with the system of judges delegate, you used formally, you lose form letters, and you had a system by which all you you got a form letter at the centre. Nobody at the centre needed to think about it. It went out to the localities and the judgment was made by people in the localities who had direct information. Now, the mechanism in the localities is quite different. It, it divides on juries of neighbours and it does d- depend on a, a sheriff to summon them. But in both cases, it enables you to expand the amount of royal or papal justice enormously because you don't need to think about it in Westminster or in Rome, functional equivalence.
0: Hmm. No, a very reasonable standard, I think, um, and an interesting comparison. So thank you for giving us that kind of context, really, to evaluate what the papacy is doing. If I ask you to, we've been talking in a lot of detail, I know, um, but I think that's very much one of the strengths of this. Um, Obviously, then doing a bit of comparison, if we could now, for the final question, zoom out, really, and look at the big picture, the full-time period. Um, What do you think, coming at this, as you said, from years of teaching, many books on particular areas within this, what do you think are some of the most interesting and important long-term continuities throughout this period that otherwise has so much change?
1: Uh, yes, I'll be brief because I realise I've um, uh, um, been um, greedy of time. <laughs> but um, uh, so, so just really in uh, a key note, keyword uh, form, firstly, the papal archive goes back to the 4th century, which is a pretty extraordinary thing, an archive which has a probably continuous history back to the 4th century. When the Roman Empire is still going strong, nobody thought it was going to end, and that uh, and that's has you know flowed out into the massive archive where I and other scholars um, uh, regularly work on these subjects. The second is that the kind of basso continuo of papal authority is that it is responsive government, it's demand driven, and this is something that has become a kind of folk theorem of. Historians of my generation, it's become generally accepted that it's not a case of popes seizing power, but it's of a case of popes responding to a demand. And this book doesn't really explain that very much, except a little bit what we were talking about at the beginning with the decretals in the late antiquity, but it tries to explain how the demand is met. Um, Delegation, being able to delegate papal power, for specific purposes, for a particular case or a specific action. That that goes back to um, the 6th century um, and becomes really routinized and systematized um, in the 13th century. And once again, um, trying to find ingenious softwares to make up for the absence of the hardware of a proper fiscal basis for government. I think those would be my takeaways.
0: Those are some very good takeaways. Um, Thank you so much for sharing them with us and for going into all the great detail throughout the interview um, to take us through a number of those points. Obviously, of course, listeners should be aware that the book itself goes into way more detail. So if you're intrigued by anything we've been discussing, um, I would definitely recommend the book and remind you of the title, uh, The Power of Protocol, Diplomatics and the Dynamics of Papal Government from 400 to 1600, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. David, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
1: Miranda, thank you for that brilliant set of questions, which um, showed, you know, great understanding of what the book's trying to do.